again, Jim, thanks for that warm introduction, and thank you all for that warm welcome. It's really a pleasure and honor to be here. You all have been longtime supporters of CA House, and it's really it's great to be here this morning and see some of the students from the CA House here. Some of them didn't realize I was going to be preaching here this morning, so I was kind of worried when they saw me that they might turn around and leave, because some of them heard me last Sunday at, at Davis Community Church, and I assured them I would not be delivering the same sermon. Although, sometimes when preachers get to go from one pulpit to another, it's very convenient to just preach the same sermon, because you all didn't hear what I talked about last Sunday. Um, before I begin, I'd like to invite you all to join with me in a moment of prayer. Holy God, you set before us every day a bounty of good things. Bring us to your feasting table, hungry for your word, eager to rebuild the cities you have made, and ready to receive strangers so that we may celebrate at all times and in all places the peace which is life in you. Amen. It's funny, one thing that Jim said, he, he gave a similar introduction uh, at the earlier service, but he noted this time that I, I went to college back east. Well, I went to college in Ohio. I grew up in Maine. So when I went to college, I went to the Midwest. So it wasn't east to me, it was west. So it, it's always interesting how our perceptions of where we live geographically and where we travel to are, are sort of the lens we use to to define those really are based on where we're sitting at the moment. And I, I grew up on the ocean as well, and I spent four years in a sea of soybean and cornfields. I always remarked to my classmates, most of whom and most, most of the students I attended college with were from Ohio, and I always told them that I missed the sea, and I particularly missed that salt air and that sort of the smell that you can get from the ocean, not the, not the marshy smell, but the real fresh smell of the ocean. And a lot of my friends, we weren't that far from Lake Erie, and they said, well, you can go to Lake Erie. And, and I reminded them that Lake Erie did smell, but it wasn't the kind of smell I was seeking. <laughs> You've ever been around a lake when, when the water is low because of a long summer heat, there is definitely a, a an interesting odor that it produces, but it's not the ocean. God is our refuge. Chapters 24 through 27 in Isaiah are sometimes called Isaiah's little apocalypse. Isaiah is laying out a vision for people returning from exile. Chapter 24, which is the setup for this chapter, ends with the prediction of terror, trembling for the entire earth. Even the hosts of heaven are going to suffer punishment. And they're going to suffer punishment along with the rulers 
or in Isaiah's day, the kings of earth. It foresees a cosmic calamity, a curse that afflicts all of the world's inhabitants, a dreadful punishment for having broken the everlasting covenant. I want to read just a a short part of chapter 24 because it's helpful to understand the context in which Isaiah is speaking in chapter 25, but more importantly, the radical, redemptive revisioning that Isaiah puts forward in chapter 25. And here's how chapter 24 starts in the first several verses. Now the Lord is about to lay waste to the earth and make it desolate. And he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priests. As with the slaves, so with his master. As with the maid, so with her mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. And he continues that coupling And then he goes on to say this, The earth shall be utterly laid waste and utterly despoiled. For the Lord has spoken this word. And then I find verses 4 and 5 particularly poignant for our time in the modern world and era. The earth dries up and withers. The world languishes and withers. The heavens languish together with the earth The earth lies polluted under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed laws, violated statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. California is suffering a multi-year drought. We understand the earth drying up, don't we? Our global community pumps pollutants into the environment 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. We understand a creation that's polluted by its inhabitants. I really felt as I prepared for the sermon and read those verses from chapter 24 that Isaiah was speaking to us today and the world that we're living in, and how we have violated that eternal covenant to care for creation. 25 moves us in a radically different way, and yet there's still a hint of that destruction foretold in 24 that Isaiah carries over into chapter 25 and verses 2 and 3. But otherwise, the poem, the hymn, The vision that Isaiah lifts up in the verses we heard is a radical departure from the promised destruction and punishment of 24. The passage from 25 we read looks at the world at the very moment of God's long-promised deliverance of the poor and the needy. And in fact, the poor and the needy of all the earth, not just Israel. Deliverance from the ruthless alien empires that have held them captive. This is a time of refuge, of shelter, of shade in circumstances where there seem impossible dreams. The returning from exile 
They're hearing portends of destruction, of mayhem, and then the promise of redemption. How does Isaiah move those who held those held captive by their fears and failures and the impending doom of 24 to the joyful vision of 25? Think Isaiah begins chapter 25 with the words, O Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you, I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. He spent an entire chapter talking about how humanity broke their covenant, and because of that, the world will be laid waste. And then he turns around as if, on a dime and says, O Lord, you are my God and I will exalt you. How does Isaiah go from that deep, deep despair of 24 to those grand heights of 25? How does he go from speaking about a time when the cloud of death that covers all people and all nations will be swallowed up Although Isaiah is not laying out a theology of resurrection, he is foreshadowing the notion of resurrection. And we know this for two reasons. One, because the New Testament, our understanding of Jesus' resurrection, is swallowing up death, literally. But we also know that in Paul, in his letters... Paul uses the same language that Isaiah uses in chapter 25 about God swallowing up death to describe Jesus' resurrection. Paul sees in that line, that prophetic vision, the deeper understanding of a new world, a new order. Isaiah goes on to speak of a moment when God wipes away all tears and hurt. It is in that moment, in that moment, when God wipes away all tears and hurt, that humanity's troubled past, their unstable present, and their joy-filled future will come together in a cosmic, yet deeply intimate experience. Think about it. In a singular moment, all of human history will coalesce. The pain and suffering of generations and eons, the instability of the present life, and the joy and promises of a future eternity will come together. Isaiah's vision depicts a world and a time in which we, God's people, live most faithfully. His vision in 24, as he tells the people, was a time when they broke the eternal covenant, the everlasting covenant with God. And due to their breaking of that covenant, the world was laid waste. And now he turns and says to them, The future, the vision I'm lifting up to you is one where you will live more faithfully than you have ever lived. It's that time, it's that moment that we would call 
the transformative edge of history. The moment when God's rule is fulfilled and the powers of the world are cast down. The vision of the new Jerusalem rising. That's the transformative edge of history we're talking about here. That time when God will dwell with us in a mighty and powerful way. I want to spend some time unpacking the first verse, first half of verse 8. That part where Isaiah says, The Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. Take a moment and reflect upon these words. What does it mean for you to know that God will wipe away tears not just from your face, not just from your loved one's face, not just from your neighbor's face, but the tears from all faces. The Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. There's something primordial in those words. We're not taught to cry, are we? How many of you were taught to cry? And in fact, when we're born, what does the doctor do? The doctor clears the airway of the child, and often that clearing of the airway causes the child to scream out, to cry, to burst out. So we know that crying, that tears are not taught or learned. Tears flow naturally from our eyes. And yes, there are tears of joy. No one will deny that. But the reality is that most of our tears are ones of sadness and despair. And those are the tears that Isaiah is talking about God wiping away from all faces. That wiping away of those tears is the physical manifestation of God's promise to heal a broken world, to restore us to wholeness. We all long for that deep loving embrace of God where our pain and grief will be swallowed up again, swallowing up. We talk about the bosom of God we talked about in this we heard in the song God's embrace as a mother's embrace. God in that embrace swallows up our pain and our grief. And our last tear is wiped away. And in so doing, that's the moment we are reborn. Made new. It's the moment that you came into this world. No pain, no suffering, no despair, no distrust. When we're restored to that moment, we're reborn. The promise Isaiah utters, therefore, some 800 years before Christ is born, 
is repeated almost verbatim at the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 21, verses 3 and 4. And this is what the author of Revelation says. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. There it is, God coming down and dwelling with us. He will dwell with them as their God. They will be his people's and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. The first things have passed away. Isaiah, Jesus, the author of Revelation, all caught the same vision about what God's promise to humanity is. The promise to so care for us and protect us. As we learned in the message for the children, to be our Snuggie. That vision is caught here. I know some of you here this morning might be saying to yourself, but for nearly three millennia, the same vision has been articulated in one manner or another. I'm sure Kelly has preached many sermons about how God is going to restore you, make you whole again, take away your pain and suffering. We've heard how our tears will be wiped away. And yet, here we sit today, many of us with tear-filled eyes, because a loved one is suffering. We are suffering. Many of us are in pain because of illness, psychological or physical, because a loved one is in pain because we grieve for creation. And the ever-present cloud of death hangs over us all. So you push back and you say, how can Isaiah's vision be one of hope and promise? How can it be so that the author of Revelation could pick up that theme and we, the church, continue to spread it and share it? Well, I'd agree with you. That it's true, you're right on all those points. Many of us are tear-filled because of the pain that we've experienced. Many of us do suffer illness, physical, emotional, and spiritual. And all of us, at some point, will experience death personally. And I'm sure if we were able to bring Isaiah back and have a conversation with Isaiah he'd agree with us too that he could look around and see that the vision that he's laid out is yet to be realized. So too with Jesus and the author of Revelation and all the theologians and pastors and people of faith that have come between then and now could all agree that these promises have not been realized. But the good news is they're not promises made by mortals. It's not a promise that Isaiah is making. 
It's the promise that God is making. It's God's covenant with us. God's promise to us. Theologians like to call this type of promise the already and the not yet. It's a living promise. It's already happening in our lives. It's already happening in creation. Each day, new elements of this are being ushered in. And at the same time, we're waiting for the fullness of it to be realized. It's a div- they are a divine promise for all who place their faith in God, the fountain of hope for our lives. But you might still stop me and say, isn't that sort of pie in the sky, oh, in the by and by, like those great gospel hymns talk about, that our reward will be in heaven? Or you might say to me, well, didn't Karl Marx say that Religion is an opiate of the masses that the church uses these beautiful, poetic words to co-opt them in to some grand scheme to avoid changing the world. Well, I'd say not at all. It's very clear that our hope in God's promises is what lives at the heart of Christian faith. It's one of the great things that distinguishes persons of faith from those who buy into the values of our present culture and world. Though the promise is not yet fulfilled, it functions at the heart of our life together. It's what creates community. In other words, God's promises that there will be no more tears is at the heart of worship. Have you ever thought about that? The promise that there will be no more tears is at the heart of worship. Worship ought to be a joyful thing because it connects us with the promise of final healing for our brokenness. It's the place where we come to be restored to our better selves. We sing and rejoice and reach out to the world around us because we live as those who are under the power of God's promise. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, the author of Revelation 21 says. Do you see... We are a people of joyous worship because we build our lives on promises of healing and wholeness that cannot be broken. We may fall down. We may sometimes not live up to our own expectations or the expectations that God has placed before us as people of faith. But God never fails us. Isaiah says, I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. He's talking about all the way back to the beginning of creation, the promises that God made to Adam and Eve, the promises God made to Abraham and Moses, and all the way through. When we 
when worship is not joyful, it may be because we are not fully connected to God's promise of freedom from everything that brings grief and pain into our lives. We celebrate the faith as a community of people who are both already but not yet. So even we are people who are already but not yet. How many of you have stopped growing, stopped changing? Right. So we are already but not yet. That is, we are already living with God's promise as life's foundation. But the promise is not yet fully actualized in God's kingdom, which will never end. So individually we're already but not yet, and as a community we're already but not yet. And these two concepts of already and not yet have powerful implications for living that Isaiah points out. Because we are a people who have already embraced God's promise for living, we are a people of hope. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things. Though the completion, complete redemption of this world lies in the future, the prophet sings praises because God's promise is God's action. God is an active God, a living God. And if God makes these promises, then they will be done. What do we pray? Thy will be done, not my will. Besides people of hope, the promises we live by means that we can be a patient people. Isaiah affirms that on the day when God brings about the completion of redemption, it will be said, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him so that he might save us. We've waited for God so that God might save us. Waiting is difficult, especially in tough times. It's even more difficult when the outcome of some trial is uncertain. We've been through a long economic downturn and a slow recovery. And we don't know where that recovery is going It's an uncertain time, and therefore waiting for God's promise of care and redemption in the full, bounteous table that Isaiah speaks of is difficult sometimes. But when the waiting is simply the necessary prelude to a guaranteed good outcome, we are much more able to grow in patience. God guarantees no more tears. And it makes it possible for us to grow in patience. And these two qualities of hope and patience are inward qualities that shape our lives and our community of faith. But these qualities of hope and patience are not all. We also are a people of particular kind of action in a world because of the promises we live by. You have been a refuge to the poor, a refuge to the needy in their distress. To share in the promises of God means that we also need to share in the purposes of God. 
The church and its people are attentive to the needs of the poor and the dispossessed of the earth. Very frequently, it is the church that is present in the disasters of the world with hope and help in the name of God. We live as those who have been called to share in a heavenly banquet. We are committed to bring food to the hungry because we are already living by the prophet's proclamation. The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a, rich, a feast of rich food. One might be tempted to say Isaiah's vision is as beautiful as it as beautiful as it is, is nothing more than lofty poetry. And therefore it really doesn't matter. Are any any poets in the house? Authors, writers, songs, minstrels. Well, folks that are poets and writers and musicians, know that poetry does matter. It may even change the world. For for instance, the words of the American Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. That has been reutilized several times to envision Equalities that lay well beyond the imagination of its original writers. Hear how it was revisioned the first time. The words were invoked in 1848 by women's rights advocates in Seneca Falls, New York, who paraphrased, all men and women are created equal. They were invoked by at, the Gettys- at Gettysburg in 1863 by Abraham Lincoln, shortly after he signed the proclamation emancipating the slaves. And then a hundred years later, when Martin Luther King marched on the mall in Washington, D.C., describing his dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed, that all are created equal. We went from all men being created equal to all men and women being created equal to all being created equal. Such words that soar above human reality can help fuel change. The picture of the banquet attended by all nations like the earlier and similar similar swords into plowshares passage in Isaiah 2 feeds hope for peace among the earth's nations. And finally, and we are called to bring justice to an unjust world. God also destroyed the shroud that cast over all people. Though justice and righteousness are absent from so much of the world, we live by goodness and righteousness of God that is already our life's reality but not yet shared by the world. And when God makes it possible for us to taste that beautiful truth, we must bring a taste of that truth to wherever we live. Amen.